The beginning of this episode contains references to physical violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's July 16th, 1854, and New York City is in the middle of a sizzling heat wave. Horse-drawn wagons clatter down the streets, men are sweating through their wool suits, and women in full corsets and petticoats fan themselves on the way to the market. Elizabeth Jennings and her friend Sarah Adams were on their way to church, dressed in their Sunday best. They were running late and rushed to get on their usual streetcar. We got on the platform when the conductor told us to wait for the next car. I told him I could not wait, as I was in a hurry to go to church. He then told me that the other car had my people in it. Elizabeth and Sarah were black women, and they knew all too well what that white conductor meant. He motioned for them to get off, but Elizabeth was not having it. I then told him I had no people. I wished to go to church as I'd been going, and I did not wish to be detained. He insisted upon my getting off the car. The second streetcar soon arrived. A sign on the front of it read, Colored people allowed in this car. Elizabeth and Sarah tried to sit back down on the first car, only to be stopped again. This time, the conductor stood in front of them, his arms blocking their path. He said to me, well, you may go in, but remember, if the passengers raise any objection, you shall go out, or I'll put you out. Now, this was an actual New York City transit rule. Black folks could ride with white people if no one made a fuss. If they took issue, though, you had to leave. And Elizabeth had something to say. I am a respectable person born and raised in New York, and you're a good-for-nothing, impudent fellow for insulting genteel people on their way to church. What happened next was a fast-paced and ugly series of events. The conductor grabs her, but Elizabeth hangs onto the window sash, refusing to get off. But he keeps yanking her, finally calling the driver for backup. He then ordered the driver to help him put me out of the car. They both seized me by the arms and pulled me and dragged me flat down on the bottom of the platform. I screamed murder with all my voice, and my companion screamed out, You'll kill her! Don't kill her! Elizabeth was thrown headfirst into the street like a rag doll. Sarah, her friend, was dragged off too. Bleeding, battered, and bruised, she picked up her hat off the ground and placed it carefully on her head. And in a boss move, she jumped back on. Elizabeth shouted a threat of her own. I shall get redress for this. To these men, Elizabeth Jennings was just another black citizen they could put in her place. But they were about to learn. They had it so wrong. I'm Takara Small, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That, a different kind of history show. On today's episode, how Elizabeth Jennings' resistance would challenge transportation segregation in New York and inspire civil rights activists for generations to come. Stay with us. Before we can get into Elizabeth's story, we need 
need to understand what New York was like in 1854. This was seven years before the Civil War broke out. New York was a free state, but it was hardly a paradise for black folks. New York had lots of business ties with the South. Just five years earlier, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, which allowed Southerners to hunt for enslaved folks who had escaped to the state. The threat of violence was everywhere, including New York City. That day on the streetcar, Elizabeth had joined a long list of black women and men who'd been wildly mistreated for trying to use public transportation. The violent discrimination had stretched across the northern United States. It impacted everyone, from everyday citizens like Elizabeth to notable folks like Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and Frederick Douglass. It was a sign of the times, harsh times. The stench of slavery is hanging in the North in ways that we tend not really to fully understand and imagine. Black people across the North were catching hell. That's Leslie Alexander, a professor of history at Rutgers University, where she specializes in African-American and African diaspora history. Leslie was learning about the experiences of the free Black community in New York City during the 19th century, when she discovered the story of Elizabeth Jennings. And Elizabeth's bravery was the true standout. For her to be in an extremely hostile environment and to speak up for herself, to assert her rights, to ultimately engage in a physical altercation on a personal level. I just love that fight in her and just really deeply respect and resonate with the courage that it required to, to do what she did in that situation. Courage that for Black people back then was hard-earned. Only 27 years earlier, many folks like Elizabeth were property in New York, which was why public spaces like streetcars could be so uncertain. Northern streetcars, for the most part, are privately owned and are segregated. And what's particularly complicated is that streetcars are segregated according to how white people want to ride. Black folks had their designated cars, but it didn't matter. The system was rigged against them. Sometimes they'll go to get on a colored car and it's filled with white folks who didn't want to have to wait for the next car. And in the meantime, Black people are having to wait multiple times. So the streetcars are really sort of contested spaces in the sense that they function to serve the sort of whims and pleasures of white folks in every imaginable way. Elizabeth, a Black woman born free, was sharing space with white New Yorkers, including those who would do anything to uphold their perceived superiority over Black people. Speaking up could mean anything from being jailed to being killed. Faced with that risk, you could say it made sense for her to lay low, keep her head down, and play the obedient part. But that clearly wasn't Elizabeth. So what gave her the confidence to be so fearlessly outspoken? To unapologetically stand up for her rights? Well, to understand that, you have to know a little bit about the Jennings family, starting with her powerhouse father, Thomas Jennings. He developed the precursor to dry cleaning. It was a technology that they called dry scouring. And he is able actually to obtain the patent for it. As a result, he becomes the first black person in the United States to obtain a patent. I mean, big flex. Thomas had found his place in the clothing business at a young age. 
Born to a free African-American family in New York City, he'd open a tailor shop at 19 and made a name for himself by doing things like making clothes himself, when other tailors just altered existing clothing. He invented dry scouring and obtained his patent just two years later. Dry scouring becomes very popular and very profitable. And so he's able to, to build a pretty respectable fortune. But Thomas didn't stop there. He had bigger goals than financial success. As his business flourished, so did his activism. And he used his money to support meaningful causes. Slavery was shattering Black lives throughout the country. Thomas couldn't just sit back and watch. Thomas Jennings is a person who is funneling the money that is coming in through his dry scouring business into the abolitionist movement. He joins and helps create the New York branch of the American Anti-Slavery Society, which becomes the largest and most powerful national abolitionist organization of the 19th century. And then he added another goal to his mission. He wanted to make sure the Black community was informed and connected on important news. And he also gives money to fund and support Black newspapers. He first finances a Black newspaper called The Weekly Advocate that then goes on to be The Colored American, the dominant Black newspaper up until the time that Frederick Douglass creates the North Star. Finding his lane in the abolitionist movement led him to connect with folks like Frederick Douglass himself. But Thomas wasn't the only radical Jennings. Elizabeth's mother also named Elizabeth, was a badass too. So we have Elizabeth Jennings Sr., who is a committed abolitionist at a time that women are not encouraged to be outspoken, public-facing activists. During this time, Black women were fighting for equality on two fronts, race and sex. And their male counterparts were not exactly helpful. While the men held their all-guys meetings and took turns sharing their ideas, women were only allowed to join if they were expressly invited. And even then, they rarely got to speak in front of the group. But Elizabeth Sr. wasn't going to let some sexism stop her from fighting to free the enslaved. She knew the horrors of slavery on a personal level. She'd lived it. So she found her own way to be a leader in the abolitionist movement. She finds alternative kind of ways to channel her activism towards the liberation of Black people and Black women more specifically. She forms what becomes known as the Colored Ladies Literary Society. With these passionate activists as her parents and their strong community ties, Elizabeth was the product of something truly special. Elizabeth Jennings Jr. is not living sort of, you know, a typical life. She's living in a nice household, and she has wealthy parents, and she herself is well-connected. But Elizabeth Jennings Jr., at the end of the day, is a Black woman in America. And Elizabeth Jennings had gotten a violent reminder of that on the morning of July 16th. After the streetcar incident... Elizabeth walked the long blocks home to her parents' house. You could imagine her parents, concerned and furious, taking in her injuries, wanting to get to work straight away and seek justice for their daughter. Well, that's exactly what they did. 
The Third Avenue Railroad Company was about to find out exactly how far the Jennings family would go to get justice. And they wouldn't be alone in their fight. They would get help from an unexpected ally, one who would go on to become President of the United States. That's after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. News of Elizabeth's assault had spread like wildfire in the Black community. The following day, folks from all over Manhattan poured into the first colored American congregational church to show their support and voice their outrage. But there was a notable person absent. Elizabeth Jennings Jr. does not attend the meeting in person. The reports indicate that she was recovering from the injuries that she suffered. And so her father attends and represents her at the meeting, speaking on her behalf. She'd taken the time to write out her full account of the traumatic event. It's what you've been hearing in this episode. Her father reads that statement at the meeting, and then it goes on to be published, both in Frederick Douglass's paper and in the New York Tribune. The congregation is outraged, and the activists present decide they aren't going to take this lying down. They spend the day coming up with a plan to get justice for Elizabeth. A plan that starts with suing Third Avenue Railroad Company. The strategy of the lawsuit fell into place quickly. Leading the charge would be Thomas Jennings. Thomas Jennings is not a person who had to commit himself to the abolitionist movement. He was a person who chose to do that. I think it's important to like take a moment and sort of pause and honor that. These are people who could have lived quiet lives of luxury and taken advantage of their elite status, and yet they chose to dedicate their money, their time, their energy to the liberation of the other people in their community. They are as committed to the liberation of those people who they will never know as they are to their own freedom. And to me, there's something really beautiful and powerful in that. His commitment as an abolitionist was to do what he could to change the future for the next generation. And there could be no greater test of his determination than to fight for the rights of his own daughter. For Thomas, there was no choice but to take this on. And if he was going to do it, he was going to hire the best counsel he could. Now, who does a Black family go to in 1854 when they want to fight the entire transit system? Well, you go to the firm founded by an abolitionist lawyer with a history of going to bat for the downtrodden. Thomas traveled to the law offices of Culver, Parker, and Arthur on Broadway, one of the most reputable law firms in the state of New York. I imagine he strolled into their offices dressed in one of his dapper suits and met with Erastus Culver, the head of the firm, 
and gave him an overview of Elizabeth's experience. Then likely in some sort of moving monologue, Thomas explained how he will do and pay whatever it takes for not only his daughter, but to fight for the rights of black people who deserved more from the United States. Erastus was moved by Thomas's passionate argument, but he was also really busy. This was a very risky case, one with the slimmest chance of success. He agreed to have the firm take the case, but he wasn't going to do the dirty work himself. So he passed Thomas off to the junior partner at the firm, a 24-year-old rookie who had only passed the bar two months prior and had literally never argued a case. Chester A. Arthur, future 21st president of the United States. You might remember him from your history books by his furry white mustache or his robust figure. Now, where is Elizabeth in all of this? Well, it's unclear, but Leslie has a theory as to why Thomas Jennings became the face of this case. You know, it is easy to assume that the male activist kind of pushed her out of the spotlight, but I think we have to at least be willing to consider the possibility that she also participated in the decision to stay out of the spotlight herself and to use the strategy of having the well-respected, well-known male activists like her father carry the movement forward on her behalf. I'd have to imagine, though, that Elizabeth eventually came from behind the scenes to meet with Chester Arthur to prep for the case. He'd need to know the ins and outs of the incident in excruciating detail in order to represent her and plan his litigation strategy. I could see Elizabeth and Thomas sitting in Chester's office while he listens to Elizabeth's retelling and takes down notes. Chester, making sure he's got it all right, jumps in with questions of his own. Knowing the White Railroad Company would probably try their best to discredit her, Chester prepares Elizabeth by having her act out being on the stand. He plays the part of the railroad's lawyer. He coaches her on how to respond and swerve challenging questions or traps. Chester was probably also nervous. This was his first trial, after all. But he works with Elizabeth and Thomas through the night until they are finally ready to face the judge. February 22, 1855. Elizabeth Jennings versus Third Avenue Railroad Company was on the docket in the New York State Supreme Court in Brooklyn. What actually goes down in the courtroom? Well, that's after the break. On February 22nd, New York was thawing out from a frigid cold spell that had had the city in its grips. Elizabeth, her father, and some of their community members made their way out to Brooklyn for the trial. It was a bustling day. Streets were covered in American flags to mark the celebration of George Washington's birthday. A parade was taking place a few streets over from the courthouse. And drum lines and the echoes of firing cannons could be heard in the background. Elizabeth was wearing her sharpest petticoat, gloves, and hat. She and her squad walked up to Brooklyn City Hall, dodging horse carriages that made their way down the street. The towering white building looked like a scaled-down version of the U.S. Capitol. Inside, the courtroom was packed. 
People from all around the city had gathered to watch this knockdown, dragout fight that would decide the future of segregation in New York City. I wish I could have been like a fly on the wall, you know, that had some sense of what went down. Oh my God, same. Sadly, there aren't any transcripts of the actual court case. We don't even know if Elizabeth took the stand. But we were able to get some insight into the trial from archived newspaper articles that covered it. Chester Arthur would come to the court to establish the facts of the case. He argued passionately that Elizabeth had been unnecessarily violated as a passenger that day. The conductor and driver admitted their guilt and pleaded no contest. Now this sounds like a slam dunk, but there was a darker plan. The Third Avenue Railroad Company claimed that it wasn't liable for the actions of their employees. So even if the two men pleaded guilty, it wouldn't mean a thing. Nothing would change. The judge seemed to agree with them. It was about to be a wrap. But just as the judge moved to pound his gavel, Chester Arthur shouted, Your Honor, from across the courtroom. Flipping furiously through a book in his hand, he read a passage from the statute of the law of the road and regulation of public stages. The owners of every carriage traveling upon any public highway shall be liable to the party injured for the injuries and damages done by any person in the employment of such owners as a driver. Boom. Mic drop. Okay, maybe not the most exciting mic drop ever, but still. Chester Arthur had proven there was written law that made the 3rd Avenue Railroad Company responsible for everything. There was no skirting it. But there was one more hurdle they'd have to clear. The jury. Before they were sent off to deliberate, the judge had a word with them. Reporters there that day from the New York Daily Tribune recapped the moment, saying, Judge Rockwell gave a very clear and able charge instructing the jury that the company were liable for the acts of their agents, that colored persons could neither be excluded by any rules of the company, and in any case of such expulsion or exclusion, the company was liable. Hearing this straight out of the judge's mouth was a game changer. But even with the judge backing them up, I have to imagine that Elizabeth and Thomas were still uncertain. I mean... Black folks had been let down by this country time and time again. After a brief deliberation, the jury entered the courtroom. The foreman stood, the room went quiet, and the verdict was delivered. Elizabeth Jennings had won. The courtroom went wild. Cheers filled the room. And at some point, the judge would have quieted them down so the last item of the agenda could be addressed. The damages that would be awarded to Elizabeth for all the difficulties she went through. Now, the jury may have upheld the law, but they also found a way to stick it to the Jennings. Here's Leslie again. Newspaper reports kind of later indicate that there are people on the jury who did not support Black rights and Black emancipation or the Black community's right to equal citizenship. And so there's some dissent about how much damage should be assigned to her. She went in seeking $500, and the jury finally decides that they'll award her damages of $225. 
The court also tacked on a 10% fee to cover legal costs. Okay, so Elizabeth didn't walk away with a huge payout, but it didn't matter. She walked away with something so much sweeter. The Third Avenue Railroad Company ordered its workers to allow any paying customer to ride from then on. For years afterwards, February 22nd would be celebrated as Elizabeth Jennings Day. The Third Avenue Railroad Company was just one of four privately owned transportation lines servicing New York City. So there was more work to be done, and it would take time. The question becomes, where is it going to go from here? Elizabeth's case on its own is not really going to be enough to fully strike down segregation on the streetcars. And so I think they realize they can't just respond in an ad hoc fashion anymore, but that they need to form an official association, an organization that they can use to officially strike down segregation. Riding high after his daughter's victory, Thomas Jennings joined forces with other community activists to form the Legal Rights Organization. Using Elizabeth's case as the president, they fundraised to pay for the legal costs of other folks who ran into trouble on public transit. You have a series of activists who become really outspoken, urging Black folks to just ride the streetcars and to embrace their right to get on whatever streetcar they want and to ride without fear or intimidation. Like many movements, there were setbacks. Progress is often two steps forward and one step back. And it continued to be until 1864, when legal segregation was finally struck down in New York State. She may have been in the wings, but it wouldn't have been possible without Elizabeth's sacrifice. It was a tradition that would go on to impact the Black community for the next 100 years. We like to sort of lionize the people who are the famous speakers, who delivered the amazing orations, and who, you know, became the radical, fiery faces of the movement. But the people who fueled the engine of the movement were the people who financed it and who did the work behind the scenes. And overwhelmingly, in the abolitionist movement, much like the civil rights movement in the 20th century, the engine of the movement was largely driven by women. So the fancy language and all the speeches and the flashy, you know, rhetoric, we love that. But that's a passing thing. Elizabeth Jennings Jr. is dedicating herself to the movement in a very practical and a very hands-on kind of way. Elizabeth found her own lane. She leaned into her passion, education. Someone like her really believes that the future of the Black community hinges on having a, an educated, literate, activist-oriented generation of leaders. She would dedicate the rest of her life to her education efforts. She ends up opening a kindergarten in her own house and dedicates the rest of her life to educating young children and trying to cultivate this generation of Black thinkers, Black political activists, Black intellectuals, who she really hopes are going to play a critical role in uplifting the Black community in, in future generations. 
we can see that trickle-down effect over the decades. Those activists did come. There'd be those who'd go on to be heroes that made it in our history books. Like Ida B. Wells, Martin Luther King Jr., and Rosa Parks. But Elizabeth's story teaches us an important lesson. In many cases, it's just regular, everyday, run-of-the-mill, average people who become willing to do a courageous thing. Everyday people can make transformational change. Something that blows my mind is that Elizabeth Jennings didn't have a model for what her activism could look like. There wasn't another black woman who'd gone as far as she did, or even a man. With no North Star of her own to follow, she waded through unknown challenges at a time when the stakes were so enormous. She broke down barriers that may have continued to exist after her. But she became the shining example to show Black folks that it could be done. She did that. Coming up next. Everybody today knows what a dinosaur is, but back then, it wasn't even a word. <laughs> so I think there was a definite real buzzing sense of excitement in that forum when you have one of the first dinosaur discoveries being described. And it was after this meeting that people really started to take Mary Anning seriously. They Did That is presented by me, Takara Small. This episode was written and produced by Tiffany Walker, who also voiced Elizabeth Jennings. Serena Chow is our associate producer. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Lily Hambly is our production coordinator, and our theme song and original music is by Cedric Wilson. <laughs>